Today's reading is from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. Thank you for joining us uh, in worship. My name is Pastor Brooks. I'll be leading you through the scriptures this morning as we are continuing our series in the book of Mark, Receiving the King. So there's been a shift in focus in, in the text. For quite some time now, we've seen Jesus heal, uh, teach publicly, feed the masses. And starting in verse 30 of chapter 9, it says that he withdrew from the crowd specifically so he could build into his disciples. So he's, he's, he's not seeking the crowds. Obviously, the crowds, every time they see him, they flock to him. But his focus is now on, on the disciples. And... Uh, what we have is, is, is we have the disciples, as they are with him, they're, they're headed to Capernaum, and you, you, can just, you can picture Jesus out in front, and you can, you can picture the disciples behind him. And they're having a discussion. They're having a discussion. And Jesus, he asked them when they get to Capernaum, what, what were you guys talking about? And there's this, there's this hush that falls over the group. And, and, and Mark records, they, they were silent because they were arguing about who was the greatest. They were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, con- contextually, we know that Peter, James, and John, they had, they had come down off of the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they got to the valley with Jesus, the disciples were unable to cast out a demon from a young boy. And, and there was a... Uh, then, then Jesus... How long am I going to put up with this generation? He takes the reins and he casts the demon out. And, and, and then Jesus keeps telling them over and over and over again that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to give up his life. So he keeps talking about his imminent death. So it's natural, it's natural that, that his disciples are wondering about leadership succession. Because he's told them, I've come to bring in the kingdom of God. But he's also telling them that he's going he's to be killed. So they're thinking in their minds, all right, that must mean that we're going to continue on his work, but which one of us is going to lead? So it's natural that they're jockeying for position here, and, and they're, they're seeking to understand which of them is the greatest. So here's the question. Think about this. Don't answer out loud. Just think. What does it mean to be great? Do you aspire to greatness? Should you aspire to greatness? Why are the disciples silent? Why do you think? 
What does that imply? What does their silence imply? I heard it over here. Shame. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed as if they shouldn't be talking about who's the greatest. Is greatness the problem? Is it wrong to be, want to be, to be great? Is that, is that the problem? I, I would contest that it is not wrong to be great. The problem is knowing what it means to be great. The problem is knowing what it means to be great. If you, this is not an if, since you have been created in the image of God, ought you therefore not to be great? Let me answer the rhetorical question. Yes. Yes, you, as a human being, were knit in your mother's womb for greatness. You have been. However, we have convoluted the idea of what it means to be great. Jesus corrects this this idea and sets his disciples with an understanding of what it means to be great. And by the way, they don't get the lesson because he has to teach them again in the next chapter, chapter 10. Same lesson. Same lesson. So let's take a look. We're going to be looking at how to become great. The title sounds presumptuous, I'll admit. But it is the scriptures, and this is what Jesus is teaching them. So let's all get past our false humility and understand what it means to be great. And then pursue that without apology. And without hubris, without pride as well. How to be great. Three things. First of all, how the world sees greatness. Second, how Jesus sees greatness. And the last is, well, how do you obtain it? How to become great. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We'll start with verse 30 and uh, we'll get right to it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Um, it sounds weird to actually say out loud that we want to be great. But you were great. And you said that John the Baptist, there was no one greater born of a woman and that the least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he. So, Lord, help us to understand what you mean by greatness. And, Lord, help us to embrace what that greatness is through you. We pray that the scriptures would come alive this morning by the, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes, soften our hearts, open our ears. And, Lord, teach us to be great uh, by receiving you, our great King and our great Savior. Uh, Lord, do in and through us what we cannot do in and through ourselves for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's take a look. First of all, how does the world see greatness? Let's take a look at the scriptures. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now that word that's emboldened in, in italicized and highlighted, greatest, the word is megas. That's the Greek word, mega. It means great. It means loud. So it stands out. It stands out. The English definition of the word great is of an ability, a quality, or eminence considerably above the normal or the average. Considerably above the normal uh, or the average. Now, what they are doing is they are comparing themselves with one another. Now imagine, Peter, James, and John, they come down off of the mountain transfiguration, and the disciples are unable to do what? What are they failing at? They can't cast out a demon. 
Now, earlier, Jesus had sent all of them out to proclaim the truth, to proclaim the gospel, to heal and to cast out demons. So at one point, they were all doing it, and now some of them are failing. So they're arguing about, well, as far as an average demon caster outer, you guys are not as awesome as me because Peter, James, and John, they didn't fail. They came down and were watching the other nine fail. So they're, they're trying to determine what's the baseline, what's average, and who's above average, and who's below average, and who's great, and who's not great. Everybody keeps score. Everybody keeps score. How many of you have enrolled your children in youth sports? How many of you played youth sports? How many of you have enrolled your children in leagues which don't keep score? Any of you? They have those. And do you know what the irony is? Is that if you ask any kid who gets off the soccer field what the score is, they will tell you. They don't need a scoreboard because they're keeping score. That's just what we do. That's just what we do. You cannot avoid it. Everyone is measuring themselves in comparison to everyone else. This is just the way that it works. Now, how the world sees it. Let's, let's just kind of summarize it. Greatness equals status. Did you, did you catch it in Tony's testimony? He used the word. By the way, I didn't write this after having watched his video. I wrote this and then watched his video. And it's like, well, that's interesting. What, what was Tony after? Tony, what were you after? Status. Status in terms of how much he could accumulate and build for himself. That's what it is. Status is when you stand up above everyone else. You don't want to be average. You want to be great. In other words, you want status. When I grew up as a kid in Newton, Iowa, um, Newton is where my, my father grew up. And so I grew up in my dad's hometown. And my dad was an excellent high school football player, excellent high school basketball player, earned a scholarship to the University of Iowa to play football, played here when they were terrible, but it was just after they had won the Rose Bowl. So it was a big deal to play Iowa football. And so growing up as a kid, I always remember having people tell me, are you going to be as tough as your old man? Now, that kind of question imprints a child. And so I grew up longing to have the kind of respect and admiration that my father had. I wanted to be excellent. I wanted to be greater than. I didn't want to just be a participant. I wanted to be dominant. And I wanted to have everyone else see that I was dominant. I wanted people to say, yes, he's as tough as his old man. He's even tougher. Some of you are like, you're just full of pride and hubris. Yes, I know, but that's what I wanted. And you, careful. I suspect you are a liar if you are totally different. You may not be as, as ambitious as maybe I was or maybe still am, but that's the point. We're all keeping score. We're all keeping score. Some of you have a very low estimation of yourself and you think you mistake that for humility. You mistake it for humility. But here's the thing. You're comparing yourselves with others and you're saying, I'm below average and therefore that's, that makes you low. 
But you notice what you're doing? You're comparing yourself. You're measuring your self-worth based upon the achievements or your lack of achievements compared to everybody else. You're not as smart. You don't have as much money. You're not as quick. You're not as fast. You're not as strong. You're not as intelligent. You're not as successful. Do you see the... It's about compare. It's about status. It's about status. Some of you are like, well, I feel pretty good about myself. Why? Because you're smarter, because you're prettier, because you're faster, because you have more money, you have more status. You've accomplished more. They both have the same root. They both have the same root. And the root is confusing greatness with status. I know you do it. But how? For a long time, it was about me trying to be better at everyone else at a particular chosen sport or sports. Sports, plural in high school, a sport in college and beyond college. That's how you measure your self-worth. Am I greater than my opponents? How do you measure or what do you measure when you compare yourself with others? For some of you, it's not so much your accomplishments, but it's your kids' accomplishments. My kid's an all-stater. Slap that on the back of the van. Or, my kid beat up your (laughs) all-stater. Both of those are measurements of status. A couple problems with how the world sees it. First of all, this view assumes that life is a zero-sum game. How many of you remember that sermon from a while back? Okay, life is a zero-sum game means that if Johnny has two apples and he gives one apple to his friend Fred, how many does he now have? He has one. That's how the world sees it. Why? Because a zero-sum game assumes that there's only so many apples. A zero-sum game assumes that there are winners And then there are losers. And if you don't win, if you're not the best, then you are a loser. That's a zero-sum game. There is one winner and there is one loser when two people are in the game. That is what it means to be a zero-sum game. So in Tony's case, if someone else has more, he doesn't have as much status financially as they do. Or in my case, if I don't win an NCAA title when I'm in college and someone else does, then I have failed. And therefore, I don't have as much status. The goal that I wanted, I didn't get. Therefore, that is fair. That's a zero-sum game. That's a zero-sum game. And when you're keeping score, there's winners and there's losers. Period. I've always found it difficult to understand when I watch the Olympic games and the announcers say that such and such won the silver, won the silver. Do you understand to receive silver means you have to have lost the gold medal match. That's a zero sum game. And that's how all athletes see it. I guarantee you that Kirk Ferentz didn't say I won the silver last night in the Big Ten Championship. And none of you think that either. That's a zero-sum game. 
That's how it works. It's how the way the world works. Here's the problem with the zero-sum game. Most of us will never reach the top. And the small 1% of the 1% who do will not stay there. I know personally a number of individuals who have stood on the highest podium in the world as athletes. They have beaten everyone in the world. I know none of them who haven't been knocked off their perch. All of them have been knocked off. None of them stayed there. I don't think Terry would mind this. I have a good friend. He attends church here, Terry Brands. Terry Brands is a two-time world champion. And one of the things that bugs him most was his failure to qualify for the 1996 Olympics. This isn't in the sermon notes, so it's just a free story. (laughs) And it devastated him that he did not win and did not go on to compete in the Atlanta Games in 1996. And he was bitter about it for a number of years. But he told me about six months ago, that one of the things that helped him most was someone from this congregation. It wasn't me because I would not have the guts to actually tell him this, even though he's much, much smaller than me. (laughs) Someone in this congregation, when he was grousing about that, someone in this congregation told him, goes, well, you know your problem, don't you? He says, no, what's that? He goes, he was better than you. You just need to accept that. How many of you just kind of winced when I said that? <laughs> you, you did. And he said, I needed to hear that because that's the truth. Even if you do reach the top on any given day, someone will be better than you on that day. That's just the way it works. I know what the competitors are thinking. You're thinking right now, you should never tell that to someone. What? Not tell them the truth? Not tell them reality? As if if you tell them the truth and you tell them reality, somehow they'll be, they'll be lulled into a sense of complacency and they'll no longer be competitive and they'll no longer strive for excellence? Well, see, if you believe that life is a zero-sum game, then that's true. But it's not a zero-sum game. Let's get to the scripture here. How does Jesus see it? We know that how the world sees it. That's how all of us generally see it. And that's how the disciples see it. They're, they're jockeying for position. Who's greater? Peter, James, John, Matthew. Who's cast out more demons? Who preaches a better sermon? Who's got more influence? Who's who, who, on the bell curve? Who's at the very top? And who are the also-rans? That's just how we do it. But how does Jesus see it? But he kept, they kept silent for on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last and the servant of all. Hmm. Just exactly like Jesus to turn everything upside down and to speak in riddles and in a, in a way that they're like, wait, what? So I want, I want you to, let's take a look. If anyone would be first, that means if you want to cross the finish line before everyone else, If you want to stand on top of the podium, if you want the gold medal, you want to be great, 
You want to be better than everyone else. You want to dominate. Do you want to dominate? Do you want to be great? Then help everyone else get across the finish line before you. Then help everyone else rise to a level that you are and then help them go beyond. Do you want to know what makes Kirk Ferentz one of the greatest coaches in the NCAA? And no, it's not because they have an awesome offense. (laughs) It's because he takes mediocre players and he helps them become great. He's a developer of men. He serves them, he builds into them, and they become better than their five-star peers that play for other, other schools. That's a great coach. That's a, that also is not in the notes, but I just can't help but throw that out. If anybody would be first, he must be the last and the servant of all. That's counterintuitive. Because if you believe that life is a zero-sum game, you can't do that. You think that if you serve, you think that if you are not first, that if you put someone else before you, you think that you won't get yours, that you won't get the status, that you won't get the respect, that you won't get the admiration, that you won't get the bonus, that you won't get the check, that you won't get the gold. And Jesus throws everything on its ear and he says, no, if you want to win, if you want to be the first, you have to be last and the servant of all. You and I, we were created for greatness and that should not be apologized for. Make no apologies for wanting to be good and are excellent at whatever given endeavor that God has called you to. You should not apologize or shy away from that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. God says, let us make man in our image. So in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have dominion over it. And then you know what he said? He looked at it and he said, this is very good. All the other days of creation, he looked and said, this is good. This, he said, this is very good. You know what he said? This is great. This is awesome. This is what greatness looks like. Two individuals knitted together who become one flesh, who serve one another without pretense, who give of themselves fully for the other, who cultivate the earth and make it fruitful for the benefit of others. This is great. This is very good. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus says of John the Baptist, you came out of the wilderness to see what? A man from king's palaces who eats fine foods? No, you, you came to see a prophet. You came to see someone who is great. And he says, I tell you the truth, there's no one born of a woman who is greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not about status. He was not looking for people to approve of him. In fact, the way that he spoke, he either ticked people off or they repented and came to God. He lost his head because he spoke the truth. And Jesus said there was no one greater than John. But then he added this, but I tell you the truth, anyone who is in the kingdom of God 
is greater than John. And then in John chapter 14, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he told the apostles, he told the disciples, he goes, listen, I'm going away to a place that you can't follow. But you know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And then later he says, I'm going to send another like me, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. He's with you now. He's going to be in you. And I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me will do greater works than even I am doing. Do you believe that God is, wants to use you to do greater things than Jesus did before he died on the cross? Do you believe that? It's a yes, no question. Do you believe that? If you're honest, some of you are like, I can't believe that Jesus wants to do greater works through me than he did before his death, burial, and resurrection. And and here's how we get around that. We're like, I just don't, we say to ourselves, he must mean something different. Now, if you're saying, if you're thinking that God wants you to literally call people out of of the coffin the next time it's your funeral... I'm going to go with probably no. That's not what he means by greater. But what he means by greater is what he stated is greatness. That you become the very least of these and the servant of all. And in doing so, you will attain a measure of greatness that will bring him glory and yourself glory in the end. You may not get to stand on the podium. The world may look at you as just an also ran. The world may look at you and see you on the bottom edge of the bell curve and not a winner and not a success. But if you become the least of these and the servant of all, and you go to God and you say, you told me in your word that you wanted me to be great. I don't know what that means. Will you show me? He will honor that prayer request. And he will make you something that you currently are not now. And he will reconfigure your life, reconfigure your heart. He will show you what your spiritual gifts are and you will become greater than John the Baptist. That's just what the Bible says. This is not a health, wealth, prosperity preaching. This is the truth. This is what Jesus said. And then he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said, taking him in his arms, that Greek phrase means that he just, he pressed him close. He hugged him, him or her, the child. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not him, but him who sent me. Okay, what did they think greatness equals? What do we tend to think greatness equals? Status. There is no one with less status than a child. Now, in Matthew, he takes this, Matthew records that he said something else. He said, you want to be great? You must become as this little child. In other words, you must abandon your desire for status. Children don't have status. Now, he's not saying be childish. Some of you have five-year-olds and they're very selfish. Mine, they don't share. He's not saying be like your little kid, be childish. No, don't become childish, but abandon your desire for status and seek 
to serve the least of these, i.e., these little children. These little children. They don't get the lesson, by the way, in case you're wondering. So if you leap forward to Mark chapter 10, verse 42, verse 45, Luke records a little bit something extra that Mark leaves out, which I find quite comical. What you have is James and John, and they, and they come to Jesus and they say, let us sit at your right and your left hand when you rule. Luke records that John and James' mother presents that request to Jesus. How many of you hate it when your mom used to go to your little league coach and tell you, my son should be pitching starting? Well, that's what happened. So talk about being great, having your mom go to Jesus and ask them to be, be made great. So they, they come to him and they say, let us sit at your right hand and your left. And Jesus calls all of them together and says, you know, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and they're great ones. There's that word again. They're great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, that's Jesus' perception of greatness. It has nothing to do with status. It has everything to do with service. Nothing to do with status. Everything to do with service. That's how you find your God-given potential is when you seek to raise others up. How do we get there? How many of you, by nature, by nature, within you, there's this bubbling desire to just help everyone else be great? How many of you, that's your natural inclination? Please don't raise your hand. No one, by default, seeks to make others greater than themselves. They just don't. It's not what we do. I remember reading this story about a 1976 a Special Olympics competition. It took place in Seattle, Washington. And the competitors are running the 100-yard dash, and they line up, and, and the gun goes off, and these individuals who had trained for a long, long time to be great, the gun goes off, and they start running, and, and, and one of the competitors, these young, uh, young adults, fell within the first 10 meters and started to cry. And all the other runners are running except for two. Two heard the cry and they stopped. They, they stopped. I wouldn't have stopped, but they did. And they went back and they picked the, the, the young adult up and the three of them walked across the finish line together. That's not part of our DNA. And by the way, don't hear me say this. I'm not saying this that special needs people are somehow more righteous than non-special needs. No, they're born sinners just like everyone else. But what I am saying is that that's not a natural inclination. So how do you become great? 
How does people who are ultra uber competitive that desire to step on the neck and use people to gain status, how, how do you not do that? And how do you become great in the sense that Jesus talks about it? Well, wishing you were something that you're not doesn't help. Me telling you or yelling at you to stop being proud and stop being this and be this way, moralizing doesn't help. So how? Well, three things as we close. An example, an instruction, and an explanation. First of all, the example. John chapter 3, verse 25 through 30. John the Baptist's disciples are watching Jesus and his disciples. This is just when Jesus came on the scene. And they said to John, He's baptizing more people than you are. It's a zero-sum game, and he's getting more baptizees than you are. That's what they're saying. And John the Baptist says essentially this. My role is to decrease so that he can increase. That's why John the Baptist was great. I have a hard time as a pastor when people enter the transfer porthole and they go to other churches. Why? Because I don't think like John the Baptist. I think like his disciples. I can't help think in my sinful flesh about status. I am naturally wired to believe life is a zero-sum game. Right? And so are we, all we are. So, but there's an example. But seeing that John is like that doesn't make me like that. I have to go beyond that. So the question is, how? How? What do I do? Well, Jesus gave some instruction. A couple weeks ago, Josh preached on this, and he said this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's in the denial of self and the taking up the cross. Now, Jesus in pure Jesus fashion, doesn't tell them what taking up the cross is. He just tells them to do it. But he doesn't explain it. He doesn't say. And here's what I mean by that. There's no parenthetical instructions. He just says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Okay, well, that's... I've seen John the Baptist. He's my example or unexample among many in the scriptures. I've got some instructions pretty sure it has to do with denying myself because John the Baptist clearly denied himself. He decreased so Jesus could increase. And Jesus says, take up my cross. So I think the cross has something to do with it, but I don't know what that means. So now let's take a look at an explanation. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two. This is the apostle Paul who elsewhere in biographical form said that among Pharisees, I was first in my class. I was more zealous than all of my peers. I worked harder. I did more. And he wasn't being proud. He was just stating a fact. This is paraphrased, but he would say this, but that didn't make me great. I didn't become great until I met Jesus. And here's what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. 
and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you want to know what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus? It means to identify yourself with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection so that his merit is now your own. So that your failure becomes his own, but he has swallowed that up in death and he has been resurrected. And when God sees you, he does not see an also ran. He does not see someone who is below average. He does not see someone who is stupid. He does not see someone who is immoral. He does not see someone who is flawed. He says someone who is righteous in Christ. And when, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, he means that I have been united with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. His cross is my cross. And the life that I live, I no longer live for myself, but for him who died and gave his life for me. That's what it means to become great. It means to understand that you are great because you have been grafted into the vine. That the great I am indwells you and because you are in Christ, you are great. And he wants to use you for greatness and he wants to do great things through you. But you have to get out of his way. Brooks has to get out of his way. If I want to literally be great in a way that competing and wrestling and all these other things or, or even having a church where lots of people come, that, that's, that's not even relevant. What is relevant is that I die to self and that I no longer live, but that Christ lives through me and that I use my talents and my gifts that he gave me. My talents, my treasure, my spiritual gifts in such a way that other people are built up. And if I do that, I'll understand what it means to be great. All else is just striving for status. So it's our choice. We have lots of examples. We have the instruction. We have the explanation. The only thing left to do is obedience. Trust. The trust comes first, then the obedience. If you don't trust him on his definition of greatness, you'll always strive for status and nothing more. And you may get it, but you'll lose it eventually. Because eventually they'll put you six feet under and no one will care about your accolades. But if you should be crucified with Christ and no longer live, but you allow him to live in and through you, then you will truly become great. And when you cross the finish line, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a story in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Great Divorce is kind of a mind trip. It's a, obviously fiction. There's a guy who is in hell. He gets on a bus and he goes to heaven. So there you go. 
It's an allegory. It's a metaphor. And along the way, he meets spiritual beings and he sees spiritual beings, people that are in heaven. And, and one of these particular beings has, it's this woman and she's like this, she's a, she's a, a spirit being who, who had a life on this earth. And, and now she's in glory and she's just radiant. She's beautiful. And she has this giant entourage of people following her. And there's light and there's glory everywhere. And, and this, this, this person on this journey turns to his spirit guide and he says, she must have been great on earth. Oh, she was one of the great ones. She must have been well known. No one knew of her. For greatness on earth is not greatness in heaven. Who are all those children? They're all her children. She must have had a big family. She was never married. But every child that she met became her child. The young man who brought her the meat or the milk, they became her children. And the person said, oh, that must have been hard on their parents. Oh, no. Some people long to steal other people's children. But when she encountered these children, they became her own. They went back to their parents and they became better children. And even husbands who encountered her, they became her lovers. But not lovers in the sense that made them adulterers, but lovers in the sense that when they went back to their wives, they became better husbands. But on this earth, no one knew who she was and no one cared. That is an example of what it means when a person dies to themselves, stops comparing themselves with everyone else, but worships Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and use their gifts, talents, and abilities to lift other people up. No one will necessarily applaud you, but you will hear, well done and good and faithful servant. That's what it means to be great. May we strive, in quotations, to that end. And by striving, I mean, may you believe the truth about what Christ has done for you so that you may become great in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your word. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who emptied of himself that we might become redeemed. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand what true greatness is And Lord, help us to obey you, to trust you, to believe your definition, and to become as you are, Lord, great. Father, we thank you for what you have done in Christ for us. I pray for those who are not yet followers of you, that they may trust you, that they may come to you. I pray for those who are struggling. Lord, I pray that you might encourage them. I pray, Father, for each and every person here, that you might draw us nearer to you, that we might become great and that you might be exalted in our following you. We pray this in Jesus' name.